Hi there, it's Ed here with a short message before we start the pod this week. Did you know that our most informed investors get insights, articles and investment ideas from Tom, me and the team sent directly to them via email and it is completely free. You can join them. Just subscribe at fidelity.co.uk slash newsletters. Hello and welcome to the Personal Investor Podcast. I'm Ed Monk. Today on the show, it's a quarterly investment outlook special where we put your questions to the outlook's author, Tom Stevenson. Questions this time were dominated by themes of inflation, interest rates and their knock-on effects to investors' portfolios. If you enjoy the show, please rate us, share us or leave a comment wherever you get your podcasts. Each quarter, Fidelity publishes its investment outlook, a snapshot of the market's landscape that rounds up the issues on the minds of investors. An invaluable part of that is the questions that we invite you to submit to us, and in particular to the Outlook's author, Tom Stevenson. Tom and I have answered some of those questions in a special video that accompanies the Outlook. You can find that as well as the Outlook itself at the Markets and Insights section of our website at fidelity.co.uk. The podcast this week takes on even more of those questions, and Tom is here with me to do that. Tom, welcome along. Um, Now, you and I have done quite a few of these over the years, and there's always certain themes which jump out in the questions that we get. But I can't remember a time when one theme has featured quite so often. And that, of course, is the issue of inflation, of interest rates and all the knock on effects that those are having for investors. It really has been the dominant theme, hasn't it, this year so far? Yeah, it, ha- it has been the dominant theme. And, and well, it's, it's themes, isn't it? But they're all they're all related. I mean, obviously, in- the interest rate question is related to the to the inflation question. And as you say, that does have knock on effects throughout uh, the the investment markets. I think the reason why it's been so important has been the pace at which expectations have changed. Uh, inflation just turned out to be much bigger problem than we expected. And the the central bank response to that, monetary response to that in terms of higher for longer uh, interest rates was 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 a much bigger move than I think than I think people expected. And it really changed um, the, the arithmetic, uh, the time scale of, of, of how we thought about markets. And uh, uh, I think that's is one of the explanations why the last six months has been such a such a challenging time for investors, really. Indeed, indeed. Well, we're going to get into it, Tom, because uh, I make no apologies for having um, not not several, but a few questions, shall we say, broadly speaking on this issue. So I'm sure we'll, we'll touch upon all the, the relevant points. So without further ado, Tom, let's get into some of these questions. And the first one is this. It says, with my target for early retirement fast approaching, it's time to adjust my portfolio to reduce risk a little. However, I'm struggling to accept bonds as a hedging mechanism at the moment. What's your view? Is it time to shift a percentage of my portfolio from equities into bonds? Or should I wait until interest rates look like they're going to go into reverse? Mm. So a lot there, Tom. What's Mm. your answer? Well, I mean, it's a good question. Um, 
bit. Well, there are lots of there, as you say, there are there are different aspects to that question. What the the most interesting part of it, I think, is about the timing because I think generally speaking, I, I think the time is right for a, a good balance between between equities and bonds because I think the outlook for equities is pretty uncertain at the moment, um, uh, and I think the outlook for bonds is quite attractive at the moment. So I think given that. I suspect that many portfolios are are weighted more towards equities. Now does feel like a good moment to um, uh, to redress that balance a little bit. But the timing is interesting because I would have probably said exactly the same thing six months ago. Uh, in fact, I did say mm-hmm. the same thing six months ago. Um, and the last half year has been a difficult time for, for bond investors because of what I was saying uh, at the top uh, about expectations about inflation and interest rates just being pushed further than we, than we expected. And that has created a headwind uh, for bonds. However, you know, I do think uh, that we are getting to the point where um, interest, the interest rate cycle is, is, is looking like it's peaking out. In fact, we had some commentary from uh, uh, various uh, m- members of the, of the Fed decision-making committee uh, just today uh, on that subject. And I do think we're getting closer to, to, the, to the top of the cycle for interest rates. And I think that that creates a very good opportunity for bond investors. Yeah. And, and just to, to recap the kind of the, the, the sort of backdrop to all this, Tom. So interest rates are very high. That's or, or, and they've been rising, and that tends not to be very good for bonds. Yeah. We're in this finely balanced moment right now, aren't we, where the yields on all sorts of bonds are very, very high. That's because uh, markets expect rates to be at their peak or maybe even have a little bit further to go, but then to reverse. And once they reverse, bond prices are going to shift. They're going to move up. Yields are going to fall. And there potentially is a, is there's money to be made, right? That's why people are, are so anxious about this question. Um but as you say, it's all about timing, isn't it? Because they've been made to wait for this pivot. Um, we expect it to come now, but you could be made to wait even longer. And is there a question around, you know, if the whole world is waiting for this, can 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 it all be priced in and actually the benefit be sort of reduced? Yeah, I mean, there are there are two. There are two parts to this uh, uh, investing in bonds uh, question. One is the yield that you are able to uh, um, receive um, at the moment from your investments, which, as you say, is historically um, pretty pretty high. And then the next part of the equation is what happens when interest rates start to fall. Uh, and as we know, bond prices and interest rates move in opposite directions. So that potentially uh, offers a capital gain as well as a as a as a high income so i i think that's that that's the mechanics of it that's why that's why investors are getting interested in bonds at the moment because they see that double whammy if you like of being able to lock in a high yield and then get a capital gain uh, on top of that i think the 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 point to make about the high yield is that it actually um, provides a bit of a cushion if you do have to wait a bit longer, or indeed in the short term, if interest rates go up a bit and therefore bond prices go down a bit, then the high yield provides uh, a bit of a buffer against against that happening. So you're being rewarded for waiting, essentially. Okay, okay. Well, 
Let's move on, Tom, because uh, it's not the last we're going to hear about bonds and interest rates. Um, the next question is this. For the next nine months, should I stick with should I be sticking this year's ISA allowance into fixed cash ISAs, paying around 5%, and wait until next year or the year after to then spread into equities and bonds? So, so the question is asking whether they should just uh, seek safety in cash. Yeah, and a totally understandable uh, question. Uh, and uh, and I think the answer is uh, that totally depends on your appetite for risk. I mean, if you... Uh, uh, if you really are quite risk averse and 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 you're worried by um, the outlook for the equity or, or or the bond market, then you're in quite a fortunate position at the moment because, as the questioner says, you can get, uh, you know, a pretty high return, maybe five percent, uh, on a on a cash ISA, and, you know, I can see the attraction of that. And but but I I would also caution that. Um, it's, there's always uncertainty. So, you know, in a year's yeah. time, you'll be asking yourself exactly the same question. Mm, should I get into the equity market? Should I get into the bond market? Or should I just stay in cash? And what history shows us, what it tells us, is that sitting around in cash for uh, extended periods of time um, has not been the smartest move because um, uh, equity and bond markets have over time, over in the long run, no guarantees, of course, but over the long run, um, they have delivered better returns than cash. Uh, and particularly in, a, in an environment of, of potentially um, higher, more persistent inflation, um, you know, that, that 5% return might seem less attractive if inflation sticks around at that level or higher. Yeah, and, and as you say, it's ex when it comes to investing in cash, it really is, as you said, Tom, it's, it's to do with how, how much you value not having to worry about um, uh, cash losses, nominal losses, which is not to say inflation-adjusted losses, but uh, the risk that your, your money loses sort of pounds and pence value. Because if you are willing to take on a little bit of investment risk, um, then... For example, bonds, as we've just discussed, look very attractive. And, and in an environment when cash is attractive at 5%, then bonds perhaps are even more attractive because, because you have those potential for capital gains and the yields are above those levels already. So it really it is only the kind of the credit risk that you have to worry when it comes to investing in bonds, right? It, it's, mm. it, it's, a, it's a risk question. And, and implicit in the question is, is the, 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 the notion of um, market timing, because essentially what, what this person is saying is yeah. that they think that they will be in a better position in a year's time to make a judgment about the outlook for, for the equity and bond markets. And, you know, as we know, market timing is extremely difficult to do consistently uh, well and I don't think it will be any easier in a year's time to make that judgment yeah and, and just finally on this question I mean th there will be some people Tom for whom you know a five percent return that is the, that that might just be the kind of the secret key to all their financial security if they get that return everything else works perfectly well they have the income they have the return whatever that they want in which case you know why not? There's nothing wrong with that, right? If, if that's your plan, it all depends on your wider circumstances. It totally does. And, you know, we are in we are in a position now that we haven't been in for at least 15 years since the, since the financial crisis, when uh, people can make that decision about about uh, risk, they can decide that actually, 
uh, they're not interested in capital growth. They're not in. They're, they're not mm. interested in in taking the risks that are required to generate that capital growth. They just want a five percent income. And if that's the case, well, happy days because you can now do that, and you couldn't do it um, for 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 the whole of that period. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's move on for now, Tom. Um, uh, again, slightly related, I'm afraid. Hi, Tom. If we are heading inflation at significantly higher levels than those we have known for some time, should we remove bonds from our portfolios? If so, what should we replace them with? Now, I, I thought this was an interesting question, Tom, because, um, you know, let's assume that, yes, bonds have some gains to make in the short term, potentially. But let's let's think a bit longer term. If inflation is higher, what role do bonds then have yes uh, it is it is a very interesting uh question because uh the the short answer is uh you know if we are moving into an era of persistently uh high inflation uh then you probably don't want to be uh, invested in in bonds because uh inflation is bad for most financial assets but it's particularly bad for bonds because they pay a, a fixed income and they have a fixed capital value the the value of that in real inflation adjusted terms obviously erodes more quickly if inflation um is higher so short answer yes if 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 inflation is persistently high then probably you need to think carefully about uh, whether you want to be in bonds at all I, I, you know, there's a big if there. I mean, uh, Andrew Bailey at the Bank of England yesterday was saying that, um, you know, he, he expects inflation actually to come down quite, quite quickly now. Now, I mean, that before. You know, leaving aside whether, <laughs> whether, whether his track record of predicting uh, movements in, uh, in inflation is, is, worth, is worth listening to. That's, that's another question. But, you know, I think there is a, there, it is, it is, there's a real possibility that inflation will come down quite, quite sharply from now. There's no evidence of it yet. I mean, we saw the wage data this morning, very, very high. So, uh, yeah, there are, there are doubts over the future path of inflation, but we're seeing in other countries in the US coming down quite sharply. We've got uh, inflation figures this week uh, uh, expected to come down to about 3% in America. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, we do seem to have more of an inflation problem here in the UK than elsewhere. But even here, I think it, it, it you know, there's a good chance that it will start coming down. And look, it's, it's hard, isn't it, this? Because it, imagine we sort of move through this obviously very turbulent period and we get to a point where inflation settles. I mean, for example, say it settles at 3%, okay, which would be significantly above uh, the target of the Bank of England, for example. But then you have to take into account what what yields on bonds then do. You have to assume that the market would adjust. Maybe it's the case that... Uh, Bonds, you know, more of their return comes from the yield that they pay. Um, and that maybe, you know, the question is, do they still or, or would they would they offer that sort of diversifying effect on portfolios that they have for long periods provided in the past where they kind of move uh, in opposite ways to equities at different points in the economic cycle? All these things are, are really difficult to know in advance, are they? You've just got to get to that point and see what they're doing to see what role they're going to have. Yes, and, and the role will change over time. But I think that, um, you know, it's fair to say that, that over time, bonds have provided a useful diversification in a portfolio for, for equities. They, 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 they move to a different drumbeat. 
uh, they respond in different ways to to uh, the, the same economic uh, input, uh, if you like. So uh, I think, uh, you know, I think that there is a role for, for bonds in a portfolio at any time. I just feel that at the moment there's particularly a role. And, and just finally, because they have asked, um, what should you replace them with? I mean, the, the bonds are fixed income investments. There are other fixed income investments. But uh, is there a, a role for other assets going forward as well? Well, I mean, you know, his, historically, um, uh, equities, shares uh, have have acted as a hedge against inflation more successfully than, than fixed income uh, investments. So I, I think, you know, in, at very high levels of inflation, that, that, that can be very damaging for, for the stock market as well. But at, at moderate levels of inflation, uh, you know, um, the historical records suggest that, that shares are a better place to be than, than bonds. OK, OK. Well, um, we're actually going to uh, turn our attention to some alternative assets a little later in the conversation. So let's move on for now, Tom. Um, the next question is this. Hi, Tom. Most of the advice that we get is for long-term investing. But at 80 years of age and fortunately in good health, I no, I no, I no longer know what long-term will be. Have you any advice for shorter-term investments? So investing at the age of 80, Tom. Yes, uh, and and as I say, fortunately in good health. So so the long term may well be you know still still reasonably long. Let let's hope so. Um, uh, I mean the the life expectancy figures are you know do do suggest that someone at eighty in good health you know could have many years uh, ahead of them. So uh, I think. You know, there's there's a note of caution to be struck there. Even at the age of 80, you need to think, well, over the next 10, maybe 15 years, um, there is a threat to to your your capital from from the erosion of inflation. So don't give up on on growth assets uh, completely. Um, So shorter term investments, one thing that I've been looking at quite recently, and I know we've talked a lot about bonds, so I'm just going to talk a little bit more (laughs) about bonds. But but investing in um, short term, short maturity bonds and and holding them until they mature, until they are are repaid, is quite an interesting uh, investment proposition because it's one of the few ways that you can invest and have absolute certainty about what your return uh, is going to be because you know how much you're paying for the bond uh, at the outset. Let's say it uh, matures in a couple of years' time. You know how much money you're going to receive back Mm. in a couple of years' time. Um, you know what the what the income is going to be uh, in in the meantime. So you 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 actually do know exactly what your return is going to be as long as you hold the bond uh, to maturity. So I think for someone who is investing uh, on a short term horizon, time horizon, uh, I think that's that's a very that's a very interesting uh, option. Actually, yeah, I, I thought it was a really interesting question because it it reminded me that we we as in the investment industry are quite guilty sometimes of of trotting out certain um, truisms. You know, you know, only invest for the long term. We always say that, and we typically mean five years plus. I would say that's the sort of consensus around what long term means. But that's there's a lot of. Uh, so, well, there's a lack of clarity even within that, isn't there? Because, you know, imagine you've got a goal in mind that might be retirement, that might be money you need for a house or some other big purchase. That might be five years plus away. 
But what happens when you get within that five years? Do you immediately sort of take everything out mm. uh, and put it into cash? And if you did do that, would that not itself represent a bit of a cliff edge? You know, should you, should you be sort of graduating your investments? It's not always that clear what you should do, right? Yes, I, I, I totally agree with that. I think we are we are guilty of just just falling back on these uh, on these rather glib truisms that, you know, well, if you're not invest, investing for at least five years, then you shouldn't even consider being being in in the stock yeah. market. Uh, and, and I think you make a very good point is that, you know, uh, if you if there is a if there is an end point in sight, there will come a point where you are within five years yeah. of that. So so what what do you do? What do you do? How do you how do you graduate it? I mean, I, I think the reason why we say it is still is valid, you know, which is that um, if you need uh, if you are relying on a certain amount of money at a point in the mm. future, um, and let's say it's only two years away, um, then you probably don't want to be in a in a volatile investment like um, like like the stock market, which in the short term can move, you know, quite significantly. I mean, it, you know, well, we've seen we've seen just in the last eighteen months yeah. that the the U.S. stock market fell by twenty percent last year, and it is and it has recovered, you know, uh, a large proportion of that this year. So that's a lot of volatility. And if you had wanted your money at one at, at a given point within that eighteen month period, it might not have been favourable. So you know, that's the reason why why we say this. But but uh, yeah, I, I I do understand that it doesn't work for everyone. And if you're eighty years of age. Uh, it's probably less relevant than if you're 25. Yeah, and and, and just to finally, just to flesh out a, a little bit of what you said around around your, you, you know, what what do you need your money for? You know, that's that's the the central question. You, you know, is it is it for income? Are you reliant on that income? Do you want capital gains because you want to spend lots of money? Do you want to pass it on? Does it matter the amount that you pass on if it goes up and down? You know, all these questions are really mm. what are going to are going to determine. The answer to this question, because it may well be that really you're fine either way. You know, you're you don't uh, you're not so bothered about about ultimately the size of your your bank balance or your investment account. Um, maybe you don't want the sort of day to day worry about it. Maybe you'd just be better off in in assets that can't lose value. All these questions are really going to what be what adds up to the answer here. Yes, I mean, just anecdotally, Ed, I, I was talking to a family member just this week, actually, who's just sold sold a property, and and so has got a, a wadge of cash, which at some point in the next couple of years they're going to want to reinvest in in, in the property market. And and I said to them, I said, I said, look, if your four hundred thousand pounds um, turns out to be three hundred and fifty thousand pounds in eighteen months' time, how will you feel about yeah. that? And their answer was, well, that would be a catastrophe. Yeah. And I said, well, that, that is the answer yeah, then, exactly. <laughs> that you have answered your own question, which is that you need, to, you need to put your money somewhere where there is zero chance of it losing value in nominal terms. OK, OK. Um, let's move on for now, Tom. Uh, the next question is specific to uh, one sector, at least. It says, how does Tom see the market for commodities and natural resources over the coming six months? Um, that's very short term, so you can you can lengthen it out if you want. Tom, commodities. Uh, what are the prospects? 
Well, I mean, I think that the, when you look at commodities, there are two timescales that you that you you probably want to look at. I mean, I think there is a there's a strong case for for holding commodities in the long term. Uh, again, a bit like bonds, they act as a diversifier. They 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 respond differently from 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 uh, equities and and from, from bonds. And there are long term. There's a long term case to be made for uh, investing in things like. Um, copper, for example, you know, a metal which is absolutely crucial to the to the whole, you know, net zero question, infrastructure build out, electric vehicles, etc., etc. So there's a good long term case why um, demand is likely to outstrip supply for for certain commodities. However, in the short term, and this question is in the very short term for six months, the the price of commodities is really determined by um, expectations about the health of uh, the economy that and 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 therefore um, the health of demand um, and and I think what we've seen is we've seen commodity prices oil industrial metals have all fallen away in the last six months and it's it's largely to do with uh, what's going on in China mm. you know China has not emerged from uh, the the covid pandemic in the way that many investors hoped also what's going on in in the US concerns about whether rising interest rates are going to lead to a recession and so you know we've seen some we've seen some falls in commodity prices so I think you've got this two-way pull you've got a long-term bullish case. And you've got a short-term, more bearish argument. Okay. Okay. So, well, I, I'm going to move on because I want to get through um, uh, a few more questions before we wrap it up today. Uh, the next question is this: Does the government have the power to order banks to pass on the increase in the base interest rate to savers, just as they do to borrowers? Um, this is a relevant and topical. Uh, question, Tom, because there's a lot of attention on mortgage borrowers and the rates that they're having to pay. What can the government do to ensure that savers get their uh, fair share when interest rates rise? Yes, well, I'm not a lawyer and I I have to (laughs) say, to be perfectly honest, I I don't know what the answer to that question is. I I suspect that the government has the power to do anything that they like um, because they can legislate um, to to, to force banks to, to do what they want. I think in practice they're extremely unlikely uh, to do that. But the but the premise of the question is an interesting one because clearly it's a bit like it's a bit like the oil price and and how that is reflected on the on the petrol forecourts. You know, the prices do tend to go up more quickly than they come up down. Like a rocket down, like a um, Exactly, that's that's what they say. And 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 what we tend to see as interest rates go up is that. Banks uh, take the opportunity to to uh, increase their what's called the net interest margin, which is the which is the gap between uh, the 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 yield that they can get uh, that they can earn on the money on their on their balance sheets and what they're obliged to pay to uh, to depositors uh, at the other end. And as interest rates go up, that net interest uh, uh, margin ten, tends to widen, which is why rising interest rates tends to be a good uh, time to invest uh, in, in banks. Yeah, I, I thought it was an interesting question. I mean, there. there is a short answer, which is that they, the, the, well, as you say, the government can legislate to do whatever it wants, but but right now they don't have the power to order banks, and I don't think they're likely to uh, want to gain that power, particularly to to force banks to raise interest rates for savers. But they can do all sorts of, they've got all sorts of soft power, don't they, Tom? Let's face it, you know, they can they can call bank chiefs into into talks, you know, uh, over this sort of thing. There's plenty of um, uh, bank executives 
who will be sort of looking to their own that they'll want to be sort of good corporate citizens as it were and to ensure that they personally have a a sort of clean bill of health as it were um when it comes to this sort of stuff so uh absolutely i mean it's it's not a good look is it to be to be seen to be ripping people off and no. so no, no bank is going to particularly want to do it. they're likely they're going to push it yeah. uh because they have a they have a duty to their shareholders but uh you know within limits. yeah and 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 people can can sort of often misunderstand what happens when 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 the bank of england raises interest rates um some financial products are directly linked to that but really it's quite a quite a blunt tool because there are there are interest rates sort of in, intra-bank interest rates which might be directly affected but it is the commercial decisions within inside within banks that ultimately determines how much they're going to charge borrowers or pay out to savers is kind of up to them isn't it Yes, it is, and, and and as you say, it's it's not directly determined by by the base rate that's set by the Bank of England. I mean, mortgage rates, for example, are largely determined by what's happening with with uh, bond yields, the relevant the relevant maturity of of bond yields. Yeah. So yes, it's not completely direct. And, and just finally, because I, I, it's a bit tangential, but it's an interesting thing to to, to raise here, because the bank is raising rates. It's, it, well, it's doing that to to help control inflation. Uh, well, that's its aim, because things get more expensive for borrowers. But this, I mean, the question highlights, I suppose, that it also makes things more advantageous for savers, um, which is sort of doing the opposite of what the bank wants to do when it comes to controlling inflation. And actually, there's quite good evidence yeah. to say that there might be bigger benefits overall in aggregate from rising savings rates than there is from rising borrowing rates on mortgages. Yes. Well, this is a very interesting question at the moment because this changes over time. I mean, what we're seeing is as time goes by and more of that big baby boomer generation gets to a position where they have paid off their mortgages, um, they're actually beneficiaries of rising interest rates. So the number of the, the proportion of the population that holds a mortgage uh, is falling um, and the proportion of people who, ha- who own their properties outright is rising. So actually th- that this very blunt tool becomes even blunter and it may well be that actually the Bank of England has to push interest rates even further than they would have had to do 10 or 15 years ago to get on top of inflation because of okay. that. Okay, let's move on Tom. Um, the next question is this. The media and investment observers which I guess includes us, uh, constantly point out the dynamism of Asia with its increasingly large middle class. I understand, however, that its share of global equity markets is similar to that of the UK, which is just under 4%. Why is it so small? And do you see long-term upside to investing in Asia? Um, First of all, those numbers, do you vouch for those about the the 4% of of being what uh, Asia represents? Well, I think it. I think it depends what you include in in Asia, yeah. because I mean, it, obviously, if you included Japan in that, for example, then uh, I mean, Japan is the, the third largest stock market in, yeah. in the world, and uh, so it would be rather more than that. And also, I think the way these things are measured is is quite difficult because um, the the Chinese 
the share of global markets uh, represented by the Chinese stock market, uh, there, are, there are different ways of measuring that, um, uh, whether it's, whether it's uh, shares which are accessible to the outside world or, or only accessible to, to China. So I, I, I actually don't know whether that figure is, is correct or indeed it may be correct, but Depending it, on what it may, not at, be, yeah. may not be the right figure. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But the general question, you know, um, do, do I see long term upside to investing in Asia? Absolutely. I mean, there's a there's a long term uh, growth um, argument. There's a demographic argument. Emerging markets, many of which are in Asia, uh, account for much of the the growth in the in the global economy and are likely to continue to do so. Just in the short term, in a sort of a more tactical way, rather than a long term structural uh, way, many of those emerging markets were quicker than we were in the West to um, to raise interest rates and to get on top of inflation. So they don't actually have an inflation uh, problem. Uh, in fact, in China, people are talking about a, a, you know, it going the other way, there being a deflation uh, issue in China. Um, so, yes, in terms of having a balanced, diversified portfolio, absolutely a very strong case for having and exposure to, to Asia within that. Okay, okay. Well, Tom, I want to get in two more questions because we have been waffling on somewhat. So um, let's go for two more quick ones if we can. Uh, the first is this. Are UK equities still a basket case or are they now offering good value opportunities? So a value trap or a value opportunity in the UK? Okay, uh, I'll, I'll give you a quick answer. I won't waffle on this one. <laughs> uh, UK equities. I, I think that uh, I think the UK economy faces some some severe challenges. Uh, we clearly have a bigger inflation problem here than the, than the rest of the world. However. Uh, to a large extent, that is reflected in valuations. The 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 valuation multiple of the UK market is much lower than than the US market, uh, for example. So I think to a to an extent, it is priced in. Okay, good, nice and snappy, Tom. That's what I like. Um, in fact, it's taken us on then to our last question for today, and it is this, Tom, uh, an interesting one, I think. When in drawdown and assuming a diversified port portfolio which investments does one sell first the best performers or the worst performers it's a good question that is a great question <laughs> it's a very good question um because i mean selling the best performers. i mean the, the argument always is that you should you should let your uh you should run your winners uh, and 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 you should uh, and you should also avoid cutting cutting your losses. So uh, I think the, the the short answer to the question is probably to sell across the board to to sell a bit of sell a bit of both. Because actually, if you sell the best performers, you're in danger of you know um, not running your winners. And if you sell the worst performers, you're in danger of cutting your losses when before they potentially uh, bounce back. So I think it's impossible to second guess which is the right approach. So therefore, I think. I would do it across the board. Yeah, that's a, that's a good and practical answer, Tom. I mean, I, what I was going to add to this question really was that, that it, it's really hard, isn't it? I mean, the professionals, you know, institutional investors, they will have targets in mind, won't they, for, for their investments? And so uh, something might have done very, very well, but they, they, they will hang on to it still because they think it can do better and they'll have a sort of rationale for that. Um, and equally, sometimes when, when something's made a loss... Uh, they won't want to sell because they feel like it can bounce back and they think their investment case is still intact. Um, I think for most people, the easiest way to answer this question is that there are 
those professionals out there who can do it for you. I mean, if you're if you're in drawdown, um, there are there are multi asset funds where managers will be looking at exactly this question, trying to deliver what you need um, in terms of income and growth and what have you, uh, and picking the assets to to sell and which to add to, in order to achieve that, so you don't actually have to worry about it. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I just think that this is a this is a market timing question, and 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 really, you should only sell something if you can think of something better to do uh, with with the money. So it's a it's a really it's a it's a tricky one. I think managing drawdown is actually a very complex uh, complex matter, and I think that your comment there about getting someone to help you with it is is extremely valid. Indeed, indeed. Okay, well, Tom, that's all we have time for in terms of of questions. We've answered absolutely loads of them. Um, So thank you, Tom, so much for your answers today. I'll remind everyone that the Investment Outlook, which is a a publication with charts and commentary from Tom, is available to read at the Markets and Insights section at fidelity.co.uk. There's also a series of videos recorded by Tom that focus on each of the main asset classes. And there's a Q&A video, which I mentioned, where Tom and I answer even more of your questions. That is it for now. Uh, so thank you for listening. Please note that the value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. Investors should note that the views expressed may no longer be current and may have already been acted upon. This information is not a personal recommendation for any particular investment. If you are unsure about the suitability of an investment, you should speak to one of Fidelity's advisors or an authorised financial advisor of your choice. Overseas investments will be affected by movements in currency exchange rates and investments in emerging markets can be more volatile volatile than other more developed markets. Reference to the specific securities should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell these securities and is included for the purposes of illustration only. Tax treatment depends on individual circumstances and all tax rules may change in the future. Withdrawals from a pension product may not be possible until you reach age 55, 57 from 2028. This podcast may not be reproduced or circulated without prior permission. No statements or representations made in this podcast are legally binding on Fidelity or the recipient. This podcast is meant only for UK residents and does not constitute an offer or a solicitation in any jurisdiction in which it may be unlawful to make such an offer or solicitation.